Today's scripture is from Amos 5, 14 through 17, and 21 through 24. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is the word of the Lord. It's uh, kind of a bummer of the word of the Lord, but <laughs> welcome to church. Uh, uh, good morning. My name is Megan Dobraz. I'm the pastor of college and career. Uh, so I work with a lot of 18 to 35-year-olds, and so this is kind of wedding season. Is anybody else in wedding season have gone to a couple? One other person. Oh, yes. Good job. Hey, we were at the same wedding two weeks ago. That's awesome. Uh, anybody getting married this summer? I mean, that's kind of a big deal. We would want to recognize you if that was the sitch. A lot of other people are going to be staring at you soon, so you can prep it. Um, I'm kind of in a stretch of three weddings in a row, so had one two weeks ago last night and then have one next week, so I've got like plenty of wedding on the brain. I got some sweet dance moves in case you need any tips. I'll be down here afterwards just to show you if you need them. Uh, I get invited to a bunch of weddings. I'm assuming it's because of the demographic that I work with and lots of 18 to 35 year olds get married. If you're in that demographic and not married, there is nothing the matter with you. It's just not your road right now. Uh, but maybe I get invited because I work with a demographic. Maybe I get invited because I'm such an awesome guest. So keep that in mind uh, for your future. Uh, but either way, whether it's officiating or attending, I love weddings. Everybody's happy at weddings. There's a bunch of free stuff for you at a wedding. Everyone looks great. Like weddings are so great. I love 99% of things at weddings and about weddings, everything, the one thing I don't love about weddings is kind of the racket that the industry is. Does anybody know this? Like you call and you ask for a cake and it's $50. You call and tell them it's for a wedding and all of a sudden it's $500. Like I don't know why weddings are so, it's so expensive. Uh, I don't think it's particular vendors as much as just like however supply and demand works is just like shot up the price for, for weddings, the average wedding in Seattle costs $34,000, which is quite a bit of money. Uh, if you want to get married in Snohomish, it's $46,000, so, you know, stay local. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so crazy. Who can afford that? It is $35,000 for the base model of the Model 3 Tesla. So you really have to ask yourself, do I want a Tesla or do I want to get married? I feel like... It's a clear answer there about which you should do. Um, but apparently, Seattleites can afford it. Uh, according to the 2015 Census Bureau, the average Seattleite makes $80,000 a year. So if you make less than $80,000 a year, you are less than the average income earner. 
Uh, and there was a $10,000 jump between, of average between 2014 and 2015. So in 2014, $70,000 was the average. In 2015, $80,000. So that's incredible that there was that big of a jump in, in one year span of time. Like that's so notable. In 2016, uh, Zillow report ranked Seattle as the fifth the fifth in most wealthy millennials. So for those uh, 22 to 34, the average earning for them in Seattle is $350,000 a year. So the average millennial is making $350,000 a year. And the same report noted that millennial are not local tech companies, people who work at local tech companies, end up with roughly five grand a month of just expendable income. Like after expenses, five grand of, of play money. Uh, so there's a ton of money streaming into Seattle right now. It's inc that's incredible. It's a huge opportunity. Uh, if you've been around Seattle for a while, you might remember that across the, the lake, what is now the PCC with all those condos above, for like three years, it was a 40-foot pit. Like, it was just this pit in the ground, cyclone fence around it, and you hope that no one gets stuck in there. But uh, they started the building, and they ran out of funds, so it was just empty. And now you can go buy groceries very close and live next to your grocery store. The Seattle Times recently put out these two articles asking the question, what are we going to do with our newfound abundance? Like, all this money is coming in. What are we going to do with it? Will we maintain being a city a safe place for dreamers and adventurers who are looking for the promise of a new and better life at the edge of a continent? Is that how we'll stay? The, the Times article asks, will the rising tide of a robust economy lift all the boats or will it just lift the boats of the wealthy? A small business owner is quoted in one of the articles saying, the question of our time is more is whether more is less, whether growth and prosperity will eat away at the righteous, all-for-one, one-for-all ethos that defines us as a city. The article puts on our radar that there, there might be a price to pay if we don't manage this economic rise well. So it really asks this question, how much of a, of us that have something, how much of it are we willing to give, how much are we willing to go without uh, or to give up in order to ease the financial pressure on those who have less? And really the answer to that remains to be seen. Like time will tell how we choose to respond to that, but it's a, a really good question. And it's the same question that the book of Amos is asking and is addressing as we continue in our series, Summer Shorts, so it's the short books of the Bible, uh, we look at the book of Amos, who's one of the minor prophets, uh, and it links, really, the book of Amos links that the amount of justice and righteousness is directly connected to our faith, that how we express our relationship to God is, is connected to the amount of justice and righteousness. So Amos is saying how we treat the sick, the poor, the old, the young, those who live on the edge of society, the, that is a reflection of how we understand God, how, how we reflect our faith. So though there are places in scripture that talk real specifically about what to do with your money, like this is how much you should give, this is what you should do, watch out for this, X, Y, and Z. In the book of Amos, Amos is using the topic of money to get us into the conversation about justice, about righteousness. So obviously there's a connection between the two of, the, two of them. You can use your money to 
promote injustice. You can use your money to promote justice. But really, he's wanting to talk about that topic and is using money as a means to that conversation. And at the time of Amos's writing, the nation of Israel is super wealthy. It's not doing a bang-up job of caring for those who have less, but they have a ton of resources. So today, we'll look at the messenger, who is Amos. We'll look at the message, what did God want to say through him, and then we'll look at the measure in order to learn as much as we can from those who've gone before us and those whom, whom God has spoken to. And what I think we'll learn is that, the, that justice and righteousness is, again, this true metric of how we understand our faith and our relationship with Christ. Join me in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your words here in Amos. I thank you that you care about everyone. You care about justice. You care about righteousness. And Lord, you care about that not only reflected in our lives, but how we're treated as well. Lord, as we, he we hear your words, as we listen to your message, I ask that the Holy Spirit would be very active in terms of us as individuals, showing us where it is that you're wanting to apply this word. And Lord, to us as a church, that how can we be a light to you in this city and for you that this city would know you. Your name, amen. So who is Amos? Amos uh, was a contemporary of Hosea. Perhaps you remember uh, him. He was also a minor prophet who had to marry the prostitute in order to, got to marry the prostitute, uh, in order to like show what the church and, and uh, God, their relationship was like. So uh, he's a contemporary. Amos is this agricultural expert. Uh, so he breeds sheep. He maintains uh, fig trees or sycamore trees, depending on how you want to call it. So he is a prophet through and through, but he didn't train as a prophet at all. He's a really good farmer. He's a really good rancher. So there are folks like Samuel who grew up in the temple being prepared, like being taught how to be the voice of the Lord. Like that's what his future was was going to hold but Amos is doing his own thing he's taking care of trees you know watering them taking care of sheep and then all of a sudden he's called by the Lord and like with a message he says hey go to Israel and and preach this message he the fact that he's called to Israel to give this message is notable because Amos is from Judah. So you might remember, quick history reminder, that around 930 BC or BCE, depending on how you want to use it, after King Solomon's death, Solomon was the son of uh, David and Bathsheba. So after his death, there's a civil war that breaks out between the nations of Israel. So it's really the 10 northern tribes against the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And at this time, Judah has associate or like incorporated uh the tribe of Simeon so if you're like counting numbers you're like why aren't there 13 uh but so there's the 10 against these two the result of the war was a split of Israel into two different nations so the the kingdom of Israel which was the northern and the, the kingdom of Judah which is the south so though Amos was born and raised kind of on the the border uh of those two countries Technically, he's born in Judah, but yet he has this message for Israel. So you can already like, imagine that they're not stoked about this outsider telling them uh, what God has to say to them. But the book of Amos takes place roughly around 750 BCE. And 760 to 750 BCE, the numbers you can be like, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. But just listen to like the big parts. Uh, during this time, 760 to 750 uh, BCE is, is 
the time of like most predominant economic prosperity uh, in Israel, in the northern kingdom. They became so prosperous due to their king, Jeroboam II. So uh, he's the ruler of the northern kingdom. Under his leadership, he expands their territories, uh, kind of their land holdings grow. Incredible wealth is brought into Israel during this time into this northern kingdom. By any economic metric, he's one of the best kingdoms, or sorry, one of the best kings that the kingdom of Israel ever had. Like, using this economic standard, he's amazing. So in the time of Amos, when uh, Jeroboam was the, the king, Israel, Israel is a confident nation, which if you remember much, like that hasn't always been their history, but they're super confident. Uh, they're, they have some international prestige. They're, they're pretty comfortable with their military prowess. There's peace at home and abroad, and there's a ton of trade going on, which is a new thing for them. Their agriculture is flourishing because of the ability to trade, uh, and they're feeling pretty great about themselves. Like, but again, economic standards, things are great. It looks really good. If, if you're looking at the outside, I mean, based on what I told you, like, nailing it, Israel, like, good job, sounds great. Uh, but by, this, by the Lord's standards, by the prophet's standards, King Jeroboam is actually one of the worst rulers. Like, he kind of belongs there at the bottom by, these, by their standards. Religion is enthusiastically being practiced. It's just not always to God, uh, it, to, to Yahweh. It's kind of to everybody, anywhere, no problem. Even uh, in the space that was their makeshift temple in there too, no big deal, huge deal. Uh, when the, the nation split in half, you know, we, you know about the temple that's built, like such a big deal. That temple is in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is in Judah. So this new country doesn't have a capital, doesn't have a temple, so they've got to figure that out. Um, they make their capital Samaria, which kind of helps you when you read the New Testament about why the Samaritans and Jews hated them, each other so much. Well, because supposedly they're not really like part of the, the kingdom. And they've got to make themselves a new temple, so they don't really make themselves a new temple. That takes too long. So they just make this space, right? And they start the space. Like upon building, they're like, I have an idea. Let's put two golden calves. Um, I mean, just kind of reading that, you're like, I feel like you're not starting on the right feet. Like, you should go back and read some stuff because golden calves are not a good thing. But they did, fine, whatever. Uh, and then once they do that, it just kind of opens the doors pretty wide for anything else. Like, oh, you want to throw in a, a thing to worship the god of war? No problem. We have space. The, the god of sex? Yep, no problem. So the, the like, space of worshiping god is just filled with all this stuff. Stuff, right? All these images and all these statues. And Jeroboam is totally cool with it. Great. The more the merrier. He also let the judicial system be run by those who were financially gaining from the results of the ju judicial system. So you can imagine that it's pretty corrupt and that justice is not being doled out at all. And though there was large-scale urbanization, which can often be great, it was on, it was built through the exploitation of the poor, the needy, the defenseless. Specifically, the increase in trade allowed them to, you know, if you don't have food in the city, no problem, we'll just bring some in from the countryside. Great. So uh, they'd bring food into the, to the city from the countryside, and, but charge these, like, 
enormous amounts of, for money, uh, enormous amounts of money for the food. And, you know, you can't afford that. And so those people who were living in the city had to take out a loan from the seller so that they could buy the food. Uh, and then the interest rate on that loan was so huge that they can't pay it back. And so it's okay, no problem by law to sell that person, the debtor, into slavery to make some of your money back. And so you're like, I don't feel like the system is really set up very well. Like, I can see that there's a few people who would benefit from this and a few people who would never benefit from this. So though there's a tremendous amount of wealth in Israel, it really is for some folks. There's a lot of excess for, for those in the upper class. They're, they have excess money. They have excess influence and power. And though there's nothing wrong with stuff, right? Stuff is great. Nice stuff is great. You should all get a Tesla. Saves the world. So good. Um, there, there, it, the sound bites that, that Amos is hearing coming out of Israel are pretty rough. And so he repeats them back to Israel. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, there's these callous demands of the rich. There are these two women who are literally like crushing the poor in for a drink. And I mean like a beverage. So they're like, hey, no problem. Just step on those because I'm thirsty. You're like, maybe that's extreme. Chapter 6, verse 13, they're boasting about their military. In 8.5, these merchants are saying, um, hey, I got to get the, like, the Sabbath needs to get over because on the Sabbath, I have to, like, deal fairly. I've got to measure correctly. I've got to give the, the good grain. But as soon as the Sabbath is over, I can go back to cheating people. So, like, move along here. And in 9.10, they just have this complete confidence that nothing bad is ever going to happen to them. They're God's people. No worries. There's this air of invincibility to them. I work a lot with college students, and so there's often that, like, kind of reminds me of a college student in here. I was also one of those college students. My, in college, my mom saw this picture of me in a shopping cart, and she's like, what are you doing in the shopping cart? And I said, like... Obviously, we're racing shopping carts. Like, of course. And my mom says, do you imagine that you might get hurt doing that? And I was like, no. I mean, what could, what could possibly happen that I would get hurt in a shopping cart in the middle of the night in a grocery store? Like, that's so weird. They just have this air of invincibility. Like, I can do anything that I want to do because I'm God's chosen people. I've got all this good stuff happening. It's into this situation that God fed up with people who call themselves followers of his and yet treat people with such injustice and contempt that he sends Amos. So the message he sends Amos with is not a new one. It's not going to shock you the things that he says. Treat people with, right, with righteousness, treat people with justice, but people weren't hearing this. And so Amos does this brilliant method of speech giving and in the short of it, uh, essentially Amos says, like, he's got the people around him, and he's like, you'll never guess what this nation is doing, this, this, this. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's so terrible. Well, what about this nation, this, this, and this? And they're like, that's even worse. And so he goes through these seven, and then at the end he goes, and guess what? Y'all are even worse. And they're like, what? Like, and he lists all the things that they've been doing. Like, you've been crushing the poor in order for you to get a beverage, to pad your pocket. You've been doing these terrible things to other people. Like, he really says, like, it's beyond, like, worse. It's, it's like, or it's, um, the word I'm, what's the word I'm thinking of? It starts with an A. It's terrible. It does not start with an A. But think of the word and fill it in there. 
uh, that it really is a, a terrible thing that they're doing, that they're, they're, it, it's abhorrent. Remembered. Um, that really, like these absolutely terrible things that they're doing. I think what's really interesting about Amos and him giving this message is that as Amos is giving the message, message, he really has compassion for them because as he's saying like, hey, these things that you're doing are terrible, the Israelites are, are like shocked. They're totally surprised that the Lord would have a problem with this because things look so good. They thought they were nailing it, like they're going to the temple, so they're going to church every Sunday. When they get there, they're doing the vast majority of the like guidelines, giving the, the vast majority of, of the, the offerings. And so the fact that, that the Lord would be upset or that anything needs to change is not even on their radar. So they're very surprised. How could God be mad at them because their lives are so awesome? Like they have so many good things going on. God, however, felt a little bit different. Uh, and he offers these two key ways that they've offended him. The first way that they've offended him is this absence of loyalty to God and absence of compassion for others. The other one is that they've compartmentalized their faith. So in this first one, absence of loyalty to God and compassion for others, God is offended that those who identify as his people are actively exploiting others for their own benefit. It's the antithesis of who he is. God is righteousness, and he calls his people to be righteous. Additionally, their actions reveal that they don't think that they really need God anymore. God has been Israel's provider. He's created them as a nation. He's provided leadership and direction and always a way back to him when, he, when they stray. And it wasn't that long ago that they themselves were in slavery in Egypt. Like, it, it was not that far out of their memory banks that this was their truth and this was their reality. And he miraculously brings them out of it. And so part of the reason that he's so frustrated with this is that they're doing to people the horrible thing that was done to them. And they're not even doing it to other nations, which is also terrible, but they're doing it to their own people. So it takes a special kind of blindness to not see that there's going to be a problem problem with this. God has consistently been faithful to care for them, but now the Israelites are relying on their own resources, what they can do for themselves to create the lives that they want, that are the level of comfort that they want, the level of excess that they want, that they feel like they deserve. They're effectively breaking up with God when it comes to like the day-to-day -day provisions, like, hey, got it, I'm fine, I've got this taken care of, uh, I've got it from here, like, I've found a way to take care of myself. I don't really need you anymore unless, like, something terrible happens and you should come back. But, uh, and they're taking care of themselves through ill-gotten gains. Like, it's like blood money, essentially, and they're totally cool with it. By doing this, by rejecting God and harming his people, they've effectively made themselves an enemy of God. They're against God, and God is against them. By definition, righteousness is right relationship between people. There's no caveat to that. Like, it's right relationship between people, period. So it's all people. Like, no matter what somebody's social standing or intellectual capacity or uh, aesthetics or economics, like, it's right relationship with all people all of the time. God himself is righteousness, 
And since righteousness could not be obtained by the ways that God was trying to make happen with them, right? He keeps like, hey, you should do this, and they don't get it. Hey, you should do this, you don't get this. He's like, fine, fine. And then in Romans 3, he says, you weren't getting that righteousness is the core of who I am, and so I sent the core of who I am. Like, he sent Jesus, this embodiment of righteousness, to give us an example of what it looks like to be a righteous human being. He did this and shows the great lengths that he'll go to to be in right relationship with his people, with his creation. When we're not in right relationship, there is a need for justice. I recently went on a camping trip with some good friends. And you know how camping is. Like on day two, you really don't have anything more to talk about. Like you've done all the talking that you need to. You've caught up. And so you just start talking about whatever, or you stare at the fire and don't talk, um, but we were talking about whatever, and so somehow we all get start telling about, like, an average day in high school. Like, what was an average day in high school like? When it comes to my turn, you know, I say what everybody else has said. Oh, I get up, I go to school, I go to do sports. You know, it's just kind of pretty low-key, normal. Oh, except for when I see blank, and I fill in this girl's name. Uh, I went to school in Seattle, and Seattle is a very small city, so I figured out throughout the day, somebody's going to know this person, so I'm just going to leave her name out of it. Don't tell her if you do know who she is. Um, but essentially, I, I say, like, hey, things are pretty normal, um, except for when I run into this girl, which is not very often, and when I do, I did not do a great job making high school easier for her. Like, there is some room for improvement in our interactions, uh, certainly on, on my part. And um, yeah, let's just say I just did not treat her very well and kind of leave it at that. What's so tragic about my mistreatment of her is that the reason that she was my nemesis is because in fifth grade, uh, she said something rude about my brother. And so I called her on it. I was like, hey, you said this about my brother. Like, don't say this. And she like, dug her heels in and like owned it. So I was like, it's on. So um, really, ninth to 11th grade, because she was a year older than me, like I was not a good example of righteousness. Like really was not the best version of myself. Luckily, not many people knew I was a Christian. So that's like the one redeeming quality is that I didn't make God look too bad because uh, just a few people knew. But righteousness is right relationship with all people. And when there's a lack of righteousness, there's, that's sin. It's wrong. It needs justice. Justice is the concrete actions to correct places of unrighteousness, to cor correct places of injustice. As followers of God, we've covenanted with God to be righteous and to bring justice. Not only in our own relationships, but what Amos calls injustice at the gate. So it's kind of like injustice when you're out and about. Justice when you're out and about. He reminds the Israelites that it's their duty to be interested and concerned with social ethics for the welfare of others. That, that it's our job to provide provision and protection for the poor, the weak, and the exploited. And Amos says when we do these things, and he says it repeatedly in chapter 5, but specifically in verse 14, that when we seek good and not evil, that's where we'll live. That's when we'll find life. When the people of God are on the path to choosing good, to pursuing holiness, 
to stepping in for the sake of justice, all of these things which are in accordance with the, the will of God and the heart of God, it's in those places that we come into possession of life. It's in those places that we're really living. And all of this life is not known just when we pursue justice on a large scale. So, of course, there's a ton of societal issues that need to be addressed and need to be changed, and all of us should be investing in those. But they also should be pursued on the small scale, on the day-to-day -day things, when we're advocating for coworkers who we actually don't really like working with but might be good at a particular thing, and we advocate for them. When we repair a friendship, when we invest in family that has hurt us, all of the little societal things, too, that we should do just because they're righteous. When we drive well, when we help a stranger, when we are just out in the world pursuing righteousness and justice as, as much as we can. And engaging in these things can take so many forms. Sometimes there is a financial aspect to this, right? Like sometimes God does call us to give money to somebody or something. Uh, oftentimes, too, he asks us to give our time, to give our, our backs, our labor. So sometimes it's relational. Sometimes it's speaking up or speaking with those who are being treated unjustly, speaking up for others. Uh, after college, and college is really where I kind of figured out like what it meant to be a Christian a little bit like I took a big step in that space. I figured out that righteousness was part of the covenant and you couldn't just like do it whenever you wanted to if the circumstances were right and you could be selective. So after college, after I'd learned all this, I made an attempt to get a hold of this girl. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Back in those days, they had this thing called a phone book. So I um, whipped it out, pulled out the phone book, started going through. There's six people with her last name. So I call all of them um, on a phone that was plugged into the wall. It was crazy. <laughs> Um, but I, I call all six. I say, hey, is so-and-so there? They're like, no, we don't know anybody with that name. I'm like, okay, thanks. Call all six. And I'm like, dang, that's so weird. I just don't think that was that common of a last name, but whatever. Uh, and then I realized that the reason that no one knows her and it's not like I can't get a hold of her is because that's not her last name. I remembered that I had made up this last name. Like I've so dehumanized her that I've given her a different name and like referred to her as this name, like got other people to call her this name. And it wasn't like a bad word. It was just not her last name. Uh, then of course I'm not going to find her in the phone book and I don't even know like what her last name is. Like I was that not Christian of a person, like so not cool. So I made myself, since that didn't work, I made myself this deal, like, okay, if you ever run into her, you know, ask how you're doing, ask how she's doing, like, be normal, and then apologize to her profusely, like, say, man, sorry, I was such a jerk in high school, like, do this. Uh, and the crazy thing is, uh, since I made this promise to myself, I've seen her once, and it was at a light, and it was that situation where, like, she's turning and I'm too far over, so I can't, like, start following her to catch up and be like, hey, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but all week, I'm like, man, if you tell 2,500 people that you need to apologize to somebody, you're just waiting for the opportunity, you're going to get the opportunity pretty quick. So I'm sure before I see you next, I will have run into her and have to apologize, which will be humbling and will get it off my chest. So that'll be great. But this is just one area of the need for righteousness. In, uh, in thinking about this week, I was literally making a list of people and situations where I have the opportunity to do something and I'm not doing it, or I have the opportunity to stop doing something and I'm not doing it. 
the, it's a, a pretty long list. And I think the question for me is what are the areas of your righteousness? What are the areas that you need to engage in righteousness, in justice, whether there were coworkers or family members, a relationship that needs to be mended, social issues that are brought to your attention that you care a ton about and just haven't had the time yet to do something about? What are those places that God is calling you to embody him regarding justice and regarding righteousness? Our relationship with God should always lead to justice and righteousness as we love our neighbor. So the first part of God's message to the Israelites was pointing out their absence of loyalty to him and their lack of compassion for others. The second part is a compartmentalization of their faith. So in chapter 5, Amos looks at the Israelites and see people who have professed faith, like professed salvation, but lack any sort of evidence that would make their profession of faith credible. So essentially, when you look at them, you're like, Oh, I didn't know they were followers of God. They've confused the assurance of God's covenant. So the covenant that God gave Abraham in in Genesis, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's said a bunch of times throughout the Old Testament just to keep reminding people. They've confused this assurance and covenant with complacency. Like this was their ticket in and they're good to go. They, They just don't understand. They've been going through the Sabbath motions. They faithfully go to temple, so they faithfully go to church. They bring almost all of their offerings. The one offering that they never bring, which I think is notable, is that they never bring a sin offering. So somehow in their mind, there's just no sin to atone for. Like, we're good to go. Here's my grain offering. Here's all these other offerings. Never a sin offering, which probably should be a heads up that there's something going on, was not on their radar. They're so confident in their place as God's chosen people that they're doing all the right things, that they go to Sabbath, that they legitimately didn't think anything was wrong. In chapter 8, Amos calls out the business owners who are being just and honest on the Sabbath, but as soon as it's over, start cheating people again. And he says that the good you're doing is just limited to the Sabbath. Every other day, you're not doing anything. And so God says he won't accept, he won't accept that. Instead, Due to their lack of justice and lack of righteousness, he will despise the offerings. Those are those verses that that John read for us. He will not listen to their worship because it's meaningless. It's just Sunday. It's just, well, Saturday for them. But it's just this one portion of time. It's not pervasive in their whole life. It's meaningless. Their understanding of God and his requirements for justice and righteousness are to permeate their whole lives, not just this one aspect of being at the Sabbath. Because they limited it, it was worthless to God. In chapter 5, verse 12, it says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Martin Luther King Jr. used it in his I Have a Dream speech. One of his key tenets of that speech is that if we were to but act the way our faith tells us to act, the issues that we're struggling with of racism, of terrible things happening to people simply because the color of their skin would be no more. He's arguing that if we were to be Christians, 
every day that these issues would solve themselves, that the justice and righteousness would overcome the, the terribleness, the, the racism that he's, he's struggling in. He's calling people to take what they believe on Sunday and figure out how to make it reality on Monday. And to, to figure out how to do that in our places of, of influence, to figure out what it means in our faith to, to make that real through every aspect. That justice and righteousness would roll into every aspect of our lives. Kind of this idea of filling the irrigation like channels of our lives and keep flowing. He's saying this is the clinch pin. Like be who you say you're going to be and things will begin to solve themselves. For, the, for Christians who are of the covenant, there is really no sacred and secular divide. There are very few things, I would say probably no more than a handful, that God is not a part of at all. Human trafficking. Not a lot of God in those places. I'm sure if they were to say, I don't want to do this anymore, God would jump right in. But almost every other aspect of life is God is active. God is trying to figure out what it looks like to bring his redeemed message into that space and how to make it look like him and, and how to help his people be creative as we're the ones doing that day to day. I think one of the hardest places to figure out how to do this, how to bring God and bring redemption is in a lot of our workplaces because a lot of our workplaces don't really, they're not really stoked about Christian values all the time. So uh, there's places that that we live out our faith in other aspects of our life that are awesome, good job, and, and we do them. And if we did these sorts of things at work, we would get fired or we would at least not get promoted. So when we have grace, when we're humble, when we turn the other cheek, when we seek the benefit of other people, oftentimes that does not translate in our workplaces. And instead, rather, we're encouraged to be the best at what you do, to be competitive with our coworkers, to be competitive with everybody else in our field, to do whatever it takes to improve or at least preserve the bottom line, and or to work within a system that may or may not put people first. The worst of the worst is when you're in a system that says they put people first, and then once you get in there, you're like, this is not put people first, and now what am I going to do? Like, I have to be in this. It's not impossible to live out our faith in these areas, but I think it is pretty challenging. How can the spreadsheet that I make bring glory to God? God's like, I'm glad you asked. Like, let's start talking about spreadsheets. Uh, it, it does require that we look to God. Oftentimes we can't figure this out on our own because we're in the midst of it. We look to God and we try to figure out how to live out justice and righteousness in every aspect of our lives. Because our relationship with Jesus is not something that we get to put on and take off as it suits us. Like when it's convenient, I'll be a Christian, and when it's not, let's not. It's in the same way that we're a son or a daughter all the time, right? Uh, you're a spouse who's theoretically faithful all the time, like not just when you feel like it. Like, well, I took a break. I wasn't faithful, but no big deal, right? Like, I'm back to being faithful. We're always sons and daughters. We're always called to faithfulness to our spouses. We're always called to be Christians all the time, to live into this covenant. I think this is one of the reasons that God particularly chooses Amos to tell this story and to bring this message He's a farmer with no prophetic training, right? He's just this dude doing his thing, doing it well, but not in this line of work. And I think one of the reasons God chooses him is to say, 
Anybody at any time is going to be used by me to bring justice, to bring righteousness. Here's the message, you go do it. I, I think that's a, a pretty encouraging thing that anybody at any time is fulfilling their role as a Christian. I have a kind of newer friend who, uh, he's like, hey, what do you do for work? Probably the third time I met him. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. And he goes, I know one pastor, you. And I was like, oh, crud. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, what's funny about this guy, and most of the time he's joking, but if we're together in a group and there's any space where, like, a sacrifice needs to be made or somebody needs to volunteer, he goes, you're a Christian and a pastor. You should volunteer for this. Uh, and mo I'm like, well, he's probably right, but, uh, you know, I don't want to all the time. There really are spaces where I do not want to be a Christian, right? There is no Christian bumper sticker or fish on my car because I don't want to be a Christian when I drive. Like, I just want to drive the way that I want to drive and not be worried about that. Throughout the whole week, I was like, man, there, I am more of a Christian when I'm with Christians. Like, when I'm not with Christians, I'm a different kind of Christian, and I'm really different if I'm with people who don't know that I'm a Christian at all. And, and I'm not, like, a horrible person, but I'm, like, all week I've been like, dude, what's going on with you? Like, there is a difference. And again, it's not like I'm a wild and crazy sin factory at all. It's just that I'm different. Uh, and why is that? And, and what is going on there? And this idea of how do I be a Christian all the time? Uh, I offer to pay for more people when I'm with Christians than when I'm not. Uh, and, and what does that mean? And, and what does that look like? And, and why, why is that? The result of letting our faith into our whole life is that we and the people around us are transformed more and more through the power that comes with God's righteousness and God's justice. There is this question, though, of like, okay, I'm going to do this, justice, righteousness, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? As Amos delivers this message that surprises the Israelites, they get defensive straight away, right? Like, I'm not as bad as those other nations. Like, look over there, or you're holding us to high, too high of a standard. They're, in essence, arguing that God grade on a curve, and they would get to set the curve, which, I mean, all of us would want to do that. I had my nephew this week, and he's only allowed one dessert a day, which is a good choice, so don't judge me on that. And I was like, hey, what'd you have for lunch today? And he goes, oh, I had a sandwich and this and this and some Oreos. And I was like, oh, so you had your dessert for today. And he goes, it was just Oreos. <laughs> and I was like, great, but you had your dessert for the day. And he goes, it was just two Oreos. Like he keeps saying to me, it's just two Oreos. And I was like, I don't know what you count as dessert, but Oreos is dessert. Like, thanks for that. Like, just that defensiveness, right? You get called out and you're instantly like, don't look over here, look over that. It's just Oreos. Look at those people. They're way worse. I don't know if you guys, when I was reading that first part, $80,000 is the average, $350,000 is the average for people in a particular age group. And to sit there and be like, well, well, I don't make $80,000. I don't make $350,000. Like, as soon as I make $80,000, as soon as I make $350,000, then I'll, like, jump into what God might be calling me to. But, I mean, I don't have that. The people who make $350,000 should be taking care of this, uh, which I thought, too. So I was like, well, I feel real good about myself because I don't make $350,000. I don't even make $80,000, so I feel like I'm off the hook. So I go on the internets and find out, like, okay, who gives the most? And, you know, a bunch of people will tell you who gives the most. Uh, but I went to some, like, reliable red websites, and there's a study that's done that says that 
Uh, their, their study only went up to people who made $100,000. So they say people who make $100,000 give less than 5%. Okay, notable, great. Doing a good job. Uh, people who make less than $25,000 give 17%. And I was like, dang it. Oh my gosh, that sets the bar super high. Not the numerical bar, but just the like, that's amazing. You, ha you make way less. I make more than $25,000 and are giving this huge percentage of money. There's conjecture throughout the article that says, uh, so it's not uh, tested, but they're, they're posting, po posting, yeah, that, um, that the reason that people who make less than $25,000 give so much is because they know what it's like to be poor. They know what poverty is like and want to help others in that, that those who've experienced poverty, who grew up poor, are more likely to be way more generous with their finances than others. And that was so convicting to me. Last night, it's like midnight, and I'm texting Brad there, how much do you give? Like, what do, what do you do? How much do you make? And, you know, we're, he's telling me, like, we're going back and forth about numbers, and I feel so, like, convicted that it's so easy to say, as soon as I have this, then I'll have enough and can start doing these other things. Sometimes that's about money, but also it's about time and about resources and about my social capital, like, who I share that with. Uh, it was so convicting to me. Do I think that I just have to wait until I have enough in order to give it away? It's, it's nuts. The challenge is that I'm like asking Brad what he does, finding out the people with $25,000 give 17%, and that's not the standard. Like the standard is not what other people are doing. The standard is not what other nations are doing for the, or in the example of Israel. Uh, for sure, use people as examples who are doing giving and generosity well. And again, that is financial, but it's also other types of resources. Use them as examples, but the standard is God. The standard is what Jesus is calling us to. He's the plumb line uh, that chapter seven reminds Israel that God is the one who sets the standard, who determines what's straight, what it is that we're called to do. And it does not matter what anybody else is doing. If everybody else is unjust and not righteous, that doesn't mean that our little bit of justice and righteousness is good enough. But I think that is the human condition to, to compare ourselves to, other, to others. There's no taking a break from the standard. We're always called to be just. We're always called to be righteous. And sometimes, again, we want that blessing first. Like, give me the time and I'll give it to others. Give me the money and I'll give it to others. So we'll do the bless have the blessing first and then do the duty but Amos says that it's the other way around. He says doing the duty, saying yes to the invitation of justice and righteousness will bless you. In the midst of doing that duty, you'll be blessed. And sometimes, of course, again, there's a financial aspect to doing the duty and the blessing, but not always, not often. But those who set themselves in a way that delights God, they will receive power, grace, life, in him. So Amos asks the question, how does your religion, how does your faith exit? How does it make a difference around you? How are you uh, advocating for justice, advocating uh, for righteousness? How does it flow out of you? What does your river look like? Are your irrigation ditches dry? Are they abundantly overflowing? 
Are they dry sometimes but not others? How do we advocate and how do we uh, pursue justice and righteousness? And I think, too, it makes the question ask, or it makes us ask the question, when will I have enough? Like, what is the number that I think? What is the amount of time that I think would be, would be good? We wouldn't want to crush somebody. You know, there's this example ahead of time. Like, we wouldn't want to crush some, uh, another human for a beverage. Like, that's ridiculous. Of course, I'm not going to, like, get a pop on the back of somebody who, you know, never gets to drink again or whatever the terrible thing is. But I think it does ask the question, what is the thing that I'm currently willing to do? How much am I willing to step on somebody in order to get a raise, in order to get a promotion, in order to put, be put in the inner circle at, at work or with the family? So I think there is, like, these extreme examples that we go, oh, we would never do that, but what would we do? And are those things just? Are they righteous? And there is room for improvement. And so what does that look like for us right now? In the end, the northern kingdom, some 40 years later, is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So those 10 tribes are displaced. They're gone, lost forever. There's this uh, topic of much discussion that is like these lost tribes of of Israel. And people don't know what happened to them. They just kind of like poof, disappeared. Like, did they go to Europe? Did they do whatever? But their lack of justice and righteousness had consequences. But there was still redemption for them. At the end of uh, Amos in chapter 9, God is very clear that he has a no-tolerance policy for injustice, especially for those who call themselves his people. But there is a gate of repentance that always remains open. And that mercy is this perpetual possibility. So no matter how long our lists are, mercy is always option, an option. His, God's judgment is never final. There's always this dimension of God's pervading affection where compassion prevails over justice every single time. But as we respond and, and think, I would really encourage us, what does enough, like what does our list look like right now? And to really think about the places where we have influence for justice and mercy. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you can be in this space with us, that uh, we probably do each have really long lists, and you are in that with us, that you want to see growth, you want to see change, you want us to be free and generous, and Lord, I pray that you would show us, again, what that looks like for us as individuals, that we wouldn't be afraid to make the list because it makes us look bad. Lord, but please meet us in these spaces and show us how to change. In your name, amen.